Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. So Pastor David uh, called me at about 6.30 a.m. Friday, and he said, uh, baby Ezra is, is, was either on his way or had already arrived. And so um, he said, can you, can you preach? I said, well, do I, do I have an option? Uh, I did not. And so this is the second time that he's just had to get out of town in a hurry last minute, but the Lord gives grace. And so um, we're gonna take a break from the book of Hebrews the next two weeks. And I have personally been reading uh, the two-year Bible plan. Takes you through the Bible in two years. uh, A little shorter segment than the one-year Bible reading plan. Um, And so you're able to have more of a a devotional feel, smaller sections of scripture. And so uh, these next two sermons, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, are birthed just out of my personal devotion life in, in the book of Acts. And so we're gonna be looking this morning at Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Uh, I'm going to read our text over us this morning, and then we will begin. The word of God reads this. When they were released, speaking of Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's ask for the Lord's help this morning as we, as we look to his word. Father, we uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for being a God who speaks. And you have spoken through your created order as we see in this beautiful time of year. Uh, but Lord, you have also spoken to us specifically through, through your word. And um, Lord, we all confess this morning that we, we need your help uh, in understanding and comprehending. Uh, it's, it's the Spirit's work to illuminate the Word and to, 
to bring to our mind um, everything that you have spoken. And so we pray for his work, Lord, and, and we confess that we can do nothing apart from you. And so we just ask along with the psalmist that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray it believing in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And so I am so uh, thankful for just the examples in my life. Um, I value that part of our human experience that allows us to look into the lives of other people and to gain perspective and to gain insight and wisdom even into our own life that we can deduce from the examples of others. Uh, We can look and see how to act. Uh, We can also look and see uh, what not to do, how not to act. Both positive and negative examples are extremely important and they are a natural part of human experience. As we think about our veterans, even this, so I was thinking about this morning, just the examples of service and loyalty and faithfulness in the midst of opposition. Uh, And we seek to emulate the good examples in our life, do we not? Uh, And that is one of the great things I believe about the Bible is that there are both positive and negative examples uh, that you get the good, bad, and ugly when you look throughout redemptive history and what God has revealed in the lives of the patriarchs and the life of King David and the life of Adam and Eve. You're able to just see what to do, what not to do. Well, that, that's on kind of an individual level, but on a corporate level, um, the book of Acts, we get to look into the life of the early church. Uh, that These believers that we're reading about are uh, fresh off of the resurrection and ascension of Christ. They are uh, super green. Uh, They are figuring it out. Uh, They are under the pressure of hard persecution. And so these next two Sundays, I want us as a church uh, to look into the example of the early church, uh, that there is much to be learned and gleaned from uh, their example in their life and what they committed themselves to and what they uh, gave their time to. Uh, these are, they are just like us in many ways. The early church, they are not super Christians. Uh, we see even just a chapter over in Acts chapter five that two believers were lying about what they gave and the Lord uh, executed judgment on them swiftly. And so they struggle with sin. We can even read the epistles and some of the letters that Paul's writing to the early church. They're working out doctrinal differences. They're dealing with their own sin. They're practicing church discipline. I mean, they're, they're carrying on the, the normal, regular, everyday things that, that churches struggle with. But it's very clear that, 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 that God used the early church in a great way, in a very powerful way, um, And we are here actually as a testimony to the faithfulness of these early believers to obey what the Lord said and being filled with the Spirit to take the gospel to the nations. And 2,000 years later, uh, Lucy Baptist meets on Sundays as a result of of their faithfulness. And generations to come in our life will depend on our faithfulness to take the commission that God has given us and go to the ends of the earth uh, with the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to look at 
uh, a prayer or the prayer of the early church. And next week, we're just going to follow the next text in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to look at the life of the early church, the life of the early church. But let's jump into the text uh, this morning. Well, let me set the context first. I mean, we kind of know the book of Acts chronicles the, uh, right, the birth of the church, that Jesus promised uh, to the disciples before he uh, was killed and resurrected, that he said that after he ascended, that he would send the promised one. He would send the Holy Spirit. And we see in Acts chapter two that he's faithful to do that. He sends the Spirit. And, and the Spirit comes and people are saved. And so you have the first little assembly. Well, not long after, God begins to move and people begin to be saved, uh, that intense persecution comes to this early church. And we see in Acts chapter 4 at the very beginning, uh, speaking of Peter and John, see what happened? Peter and John uh, healed this man who was sitting at what was called the beautiful gate. Uh, there was an opportunity to, to, to captivate an audience. And in the book of Acts, that's what God does. He, he performs a miracle and he gives signs so that he might have a prop to preach the gospel. And so that's what happens uh, in Acts chapter three towards the end of it is that Peter and John heal this man and they, they have this great opportunity and they, they share the gospel and people are saved. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter four, we see in chapter, in verse one, it says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Verse two says, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They arrested Peter and John for preaching the gospel and preaching the resurrection in light of Jesus's resurrection. It says that they put them in custody until the next day. And so what we have in our text is a response to all of this. How, how did the church respond to persecution? How would they react? What would they do? What would they commit themselves to? What would they see as the, as the, as the best order of service? What is the next step? And that's where we find ourselves in the text this morning. So when, look at verse 23. When they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends, the local church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them. So first we see that in the text that this is a, this is a corporate response. That they respond to persecution as a body. They respond together. Uh, and at, we'll see this theme kind of through the book of Acts. If you've read it, that these people are always together. They go to the church um, they're living life among themselves. Acts chapter two, verse one, it, it says when the day of Pentecost came, that they were all together in one place. Acts chapter two, verse 46 says, and day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So you just kind of get this sense throughout the book of Acts that these people are consistently gathering together. Acts chapter five, verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And so even as we, we Blake prayed this morning uh, so specifically that we see that, that the church served as a refuge for early believers, that the gathering of God's people, not necessarily a building or an edifice, that, that we are the building of God, we are the temple of God, the people, they served as a refuge for one another in the midst of hard times and, and persecution. So you, you really wouldn't have to twist their arms to go to the gathering. 
in the early church. They, uh, they valued being with other believers. And they, we see here that Peter and John, the first place in which they go after, after being released from prison for preaching the gospel was to the local assembly. They go where God's people are because that's where God's people want to be. And in the early church, gathering together was essential for the Christian. Not only is it commanded by God in Hebrews chapter 10, but it was just an essential part of the Christian's life that it served in sustaining the faith of these early believers under persecution, that the church was a refuge for one another. And they operated on a level of interdependence that many times in the 21st century church is lacking. I said interdependence on one another. And the reality is, is that we, we desperately need one another. We just do. It may not seem like it because our circumstances are, are not the same as the first century church to some degree, to most degrees. Uh, the, the government isn't seeking to imprison us yet or kill us yet. And so, so we kind of, we get into the state of comfortability in the 21st century church thinking that we don't need one another. But the eternal stakes in which we face are just the same as the first century churches. That people are perishing all around us. That there's a mission to be carried out. And we need one another. We recently went to a um, kind of a a teaching session. We've been going, the staff has been going to a teaching session led by Kenan Vaughn. Uh, He spoke here in August. He's the pastor, head pastor at Harvest Church. And it's, it's about discipleship. And he just gives this illustration of, of his boys watching the Discovery Channel. And he says that if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel, you know that if you're watching like a group of lions going to attack like a gazelle, which, you know, those scenes are awesome. But who do they, who do they attack? You see one straying off, don't you? By himself, isolated from the group. And you know that guy is just dust in history uh, because we know the intent uh, of the lines, right, is, is to kill and to get food. And they're going to isolate someone by their stuff. And so he used that illustration. It was very powerful to think through the importance of, of being together as a, as a church and the fact that we need each other. And the enemy prowls like a roaring lion, Peter tells us. And so we see that they just respond together. And that, that this, is, this is God's design for the people of God to be together, representing his kingdom on earth, ambassadors in a foreign land that we don't really belong in, seeking to carry out the mission of the one who has commissioned us, participating with one another in the mission of Christ, receiving God's word, partaking of the Lord's Supper. We see all of that in the early church, that they are together. Peter and John go to the assembly as a refuge in the midst of hard times and persecution. And as we see in, our, in, the, in the next text, in, in verse 24, they responded in praying. So they responded together corporately as a body, but they also responded to this persecution in prayer. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices. They lifted their voices together to God and said, and so I just find the fact that this is how they responded extremely encouraging and convicting. Uh, so where do they go? They go to God's people in the midst of hard times and opposition and persecution. And what do God's people do? Right? Where do they go? And typically, when, when anxieties arise in our hearts, 
When hard time, when we fall in hard times, we're enduring the trials and the tribulations of this world that Jesus promised us, or we're enduring legitimate persecution. We typically go somewhere with those things. We take them somewhere. We take them to someone. We express it to someone. And we see what the early church did is that they didn't go and lawyer up. They did not take this to uh, their Facebook feed. They didn't have Facebook, get the illustration. They did not take it um, and, and come amongst the disciples and believers and, and rally together for an overthrow of the Roman government. Is that they took it to the Lord in prayer. They take it to the one who has the words of eternal life. They take advantage of their privileges in Christ where they were formerly not able to draw near to God with confidence that corporately they are taking advantage of the privileges that our great high priest has purchased as he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high that we just looked at last week. They're taking advantage as a church of those privileges that they are together drawing near in prayer to God as a response to the persecution that had come upon them. Christ makes that possible. He makes possible us drawing near to him. And, the, and this church doesn't react. They're not reactionary. They don't throw their arms up in the air. They don't automatically lose hope, but they take it to God in prayer. And that is a privilege and a perk of the believer. And I want to speak to you this morning if you're an unbeliever here. And I would assume that some are in a, in a gathering this large, and I know some of you are, that you cannot approach God. That apart from the work of Christ, God is opposed to unbelievers. He has his face turned. That's what Isaiah 59 tells us, that it's not that God cannot save or that his hand is too short or that his ear cannot hear. It's that your sin has caused a division between you and the Lord. And if you are in an unbeliever here this morning, I want you to recognize what Christ has done in the gospel, that he paid the penalty for our sins so that we might take advantage of the privilege of drawing near to God in prayer with confidence, that it's your sin that is hindering you from drawing near to the Lord. It's your sin and Christ dealt with sin and he offers forgiveness as we sang earlier. That God does not deal with us according to our sins for those who are in Christ. And so the gospel just gives us this beautiful privilege of where we were once far off, where there was a wall of hostility, that God has broke that down. And that all who repent and believe in the work of Christ are, are, have the privilege now of drawing near to God because he has made reconciliation possible. And so unbelievers this morning, I want you, as we think about this privilege of prayer the entire concept of prayer, it is only made possible. God only turns his ear to our prayers because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. There are many prayers today offered up that God pays no attention to because the initial response and prayer of repentance has not happened in the lives of unbelievers. And so if you are lost or far from God this morning or you desire fellowship with God, turn to Christ and believe that he has made a way for us. 
And so we see this early church responding in prayer to their father. Bo calls on me for everything. Everything. Dad, I can't buckle my seatbelt. I, I can't reach the chips. Dad, I mean, we, I, Hillary and I hear mom, dad all day long. And anybody that has children, you know, the, you know that call. And, and sometimes I go to him, I'm so frustrated. I'm like, why, how, why are you bringing this to me? How, you can buckle your seatbelt, but you see just the, the innocence and the, I guess the trust of a younger child to his father and how that, he just, he trusts me. So he calls out to me and he, he brings things to me because in his mind, I can, you know, I can take care of these things and I can, I can, I can do whatever he needs me to do. I can assist him. And so we see the early church as they're being persecuted, as pressure is being mounted on top of them for their public witness. They, they draw near to their father in prayer. They understood that God welcomes our anxieties and welcomes the requests of his children. They lifted their voices together. Your translation might say in one accord, with one mind, all together. But it's essentially communicating with unanimous consent. They go to God in light of this situation. There isn't any discussion to devise a plan. And so you see the first way in which they react is that they go to the Lord in prayer. First things first in the early church. We must go to the, we must take it to the Lord. There's a quote by A.J. Gordon. And some other people have quoted other people saying this, but he says this about prayer. He says, you can't, he says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Stressing the importance, the preeminence of drawing near to God in prayer in the midst of all of life's circumstances, not just hard ones. Because typically we, we respond with, or maybe I'm speaking for myself, I respond with, I exhaust myself, I worry, I try to fix it on my own. I spent days wringing my hands, losing hair, losing sleep. And then last minute I'm like, well, I, I, guess, I, could, I guess I could take it to the Lord in prayer now that I'm miserable but we see the attitude, the priority in the early church that they respond, taking it to the Lord in prayer. God calls us to cast our anxieties. Cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you. And these people had anxieties. And so sometimes I've thought about you know, casting my anxieties on God. Who's in, who's in charge of the things that are bringing these anxieties in my life? Well, Lord, you're in charge of those things. So should I just pray for the things that are causing my anxieties that you take those away? But we see even in that call to cast our anxieties on the Lord that, that God does not promise or want a carefree, stress-free life for us. The main priority is that we have him, that we draw near to him. That the priority of for our life from God is Christ-likeness. It's drawing near to God in intimacy and fellowship. And God allows, even sins, those little things or large things that cause anxieties for us, for us to learn to trust him with those things. This week I was very anxious and maybe that's what led me to this text. And all the while I'm, I'm worrying about all these insignificant, silly things. I, I know that 
God has called me to himself. I know that I'll find rest for my soul when I take those things to him, but I did what, just what I described to you. I spent a, a long time worrying, wringing my hands, and finally came to the conclusion that God welcomes my anxieties and my prayers, and it's a, it's a proper response for the people of God to go to him in prayer. And so I'm encouraged that that's even just how they responded. They had a high enough view of God that he's high and lifted up and lofty, but he's also near and personal because of the gospel that that they respond in prayer to him. They lift up their voices together. But secondly, the content of their prayers is super encouraging as well. The content of their prayers, that they pray God-centered prayers. They begin at the end of verse 24. Look at the text. Sovereign Lord or Lord God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And so this prayer begins in the right place. Humbled, low, abased before God. And prayer is really nothing less than a humbled soul before the sovereign of the world. That we can learn much from the prayers of the Bible, the prayers of Christians. We look at this early church and they begin their prayer with sovereign, addressing God as he should be addressed, ascribing worth and honor and glory to God. They had learned to pray and really you learn how to pray by listening to others pray. I mean, the disciples out of everything that Jesus did, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. You learn to pray. And so they had learned to pray from the disciples, this early church, from the the church leaders. Those leaders, some of them had learned to pray directly from Christ. And you even look at the Old Testament and just evaluate some of the prayers that some of the same language in some of the Old Testament prayers is included in their prayer. Jeremiah 32, 17, Hezekiah's prayer. Ah, it says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah's prayer, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And throughout all generations, This has been the great and most appropriate admission of prayer, sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. You notice how they don't begin their prayer. Lord, where are you? Do you see us? Have you any clue what's happening here? Their prayers are God-centered and God-focused. They take five verses to ascribe worth and glory to God and then spend two verses on their own personal request. There's something to be learned and drawn here. They ascribe worth to God before they present the request and ultimately God doesn't need to know who God is, does he? But there's something that happens in the heart of the believer, when we ascribe that worth back to him, he gets glory from that. When we hollow his name, hallowed be thy name, is what we, how we should begin our prayers according to Jesus, proclaiming who he is back to him, praising him, ascribing worth to him. I remember there was a, there was a major shift in how I read the Bible. When I, at the age of about like 20, 21, somebody just brought to light the truth that the Bible is not about me, that it's about God. 
And I just, I just began to read the Bible in a completely different way, a completely less selfish way that I began to see that it's about God getting glory and honor. It's about what God has done and I reap the secondary benefits of that. That God loves making much of himself. And so as a result of my Bible reading, understand that the Bible is about God, my prayer life began to be transformed. And that began to be reflected in my prayer. It influenced my prayer life. It was less and less about my will what I wanted, and it was more and more about the glory of God and the will of God as he carries it out in my own life. I figured out very quickly that I can't pray selfishly and for God's glory at the same time, that those two things just could not coexist in my prayer life. And that whatever came my way, that it would ultimately result in the honoring of God's name. Listen, the early church in the midst of hardship and persecution, they were focused on God. You're saying, well, didn't they want comfort? Yes, yes, they did. And so they focused upon God. They began their prayer exalting the name of God, sovereign Lord. And it is really when we focus on God in prayer that we are reminded in a healthy way of who we are not and who God is. That we are not the sovereign. We have no authority. We are not Lord. We did not make heaven and earth. And there is an effect that happens on the distressed soul when we come to this place of rest in who God is and who we are not. You are the creator. I am the creation. And it is so important that we remind ourselves of these things on a day-to-day basis as a Christian, but especially when we humble ourselves in prayer in the midst of opposition and persecution, we remind ourselves of God's goodness, but we also remind ourselves of God's purpose even in the midst of that hardship. And that's where the prayer goes next. Look at verse 25. They move to affirm God's prophecy of Jesus in Psalm 2. And how God used the rage of the nations, Jews and rulers, to accomplish his own predetermined purposes. Verse 25 says, sovereign, he says, Sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Side note here. Let me, let me, let me have a side note. There's tons of doctrine here. You talk about the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Through the mouth of David, said by the Holy Spirit. So who said it? David or the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit said it through David. Why did the, why did the Gentiles rage? They're, they're quoting Psalm 2. And the people's plot in vain. Verse 26, as Blake read this morning, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so they see the fulfillment of, of this, of David in Christ. The opposition of David's kingship, his rule, that David was the Lord's anointed And we see that picture of Christ fulfilling the role of king and having his own opposers in his own time. So there's, in this prayer, there is an an acknowledgement that this world and the God of this world are set against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. And they themselves were experiencing the subsequent truth that not only are are they against the Lord and against his anointed, but also against the followers of the Lord and his anointed. But here in this prayer, 
There is a truth that supersedes the evil intentions of those opposed to David and those opposed to Christ. And that is God bringing about good through their evil. Look at verse 28. He says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the intentions against David were evil, but God's purposes prevailed. The intentions of those who crucified Christ were evil, but God's purposes, his predetermined purposes prevailed. And we don't have the time to walk through you know, this, this little doctrine of the Lord's sovereignty and how he works in the affairs of sinful men books, much ink has been spilled on this topic, Uh, but we're going to rest in the fact that God has predetermined his purposes and they will prevail above all, even through and by means of the evil actions of men to accomplish his good in our life. And the gospel, listen to me, the gospel is the clearest example of that. It's the clearest example of God accomplishing the greatest good through the greatest evil ever enacted at the crucifixion of the innocent son of God. And this informs their prayer, but it also informs their request. It shapes their worldview and how they come to understand what is happening to them and whether or not God is going to be involved or is involved. The church looked at the evil and injustice that Jesus had suffered, but had the vantage point that after the resurrection to see that it was God's will to bring about that glory through the suffering of Jesus, through the greatest evil. And so this early church did not chafe under persecution or suffering or try and escape it or make it their goal to be comfortable because they could rest assured that God's promises And his intention and his plan would prevail over even the awful circumstances in which they found themselves in. And you and I too. That it's the promises of God, like Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And whatever God has predetermined by his plan, even if it includes suffering, we can rest assured that it brings about our good in his glory. And think about the change of outlook that would have come about in the early church. How, I mean, that, that, that reorients everything, every awful experience that we undergo. It gives us just a change of mind to understand that God can even send those things for his own purposes in our life. And whatever he has predetermined, is good for us, even if it includes hardship and suffering and persecution. This truth changes everything for us. And you see how it informs what they ask for in their prayer. So we're building up here before they make their first request. That it's don't stop their evil, but use us in the midst of their evil to further your kingdom. We see the request. What do they ask? Look look at verse 29. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. There's the first request. Consider what's going on here. They're asking us to stop speaking the name of Christ. 
They're telling us to shut it down. Do not speak the name of Christ. Do not preach about the resurrection. Then he says, look upon their threats, consider those things and grant to your servants to continue and speak the word with all boldness. Boldness literally means all speech or speaking all things. It conveys the idea, Brother David shared it, freedom of speech, freedom to say it all, freedom to say it all and not be worried about fear or consequences. And so I think just as important as what they pray for is what they, what don't they pray for here? Again, as we examine and wrestle with and walk through the the prayer of the early church, what don't they pray for in the midst of persecution? They don't pray for comfort. Instead of requesting freedom from their comfort in their current, current circumstances, they ask for strength and boldness to continue to be obedient in the midst of hard times. Their focus on, isn't on themselves in the prayer, is it? You can hear the echoes of the prayer of Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will be done, but your will, thy will be done. Because God has never promised the church comfort, has he? He's actually literally told us the exact opposite will come if we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That a servant is not greater than his master. That if they killed Christ, we should assume the same for his devoted followers. There's so much that goes into this prayer and why they ask what they do and why they don't ask what they could have asked. They had just affirmed the truth, listen to me, that God has the ability to take awful things to produce glory and good and it result in the honoring of his name and the good of his people. God, they had just affirmed that. And so they, when they go into the, their request, they're, they're willingly accepting of hard circumstances, of persecution, of imprisonment, of death, because they believed the truth that they had just affirmed. Now listen to me, it's not wrong to pray for relief. In the book of James, he says, listen, if any of you are sick, call the elders together and pray. But that's not the goal right? There, there might be tears of request and motivations for why we would pray for that. Ultimately, there's an ultimate goal and an ultimate motivation for all of our praying that should result in the honor and glory of God, whether you heal me or not, whether I'm persecuted or not, whether you free us from under the bondage of Nero or not, it should be that God, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that the, the ultimate goal would be Christ-likeness, would be a deeper fellowship with God, that that the ultimate goal would be obedience, the display of God's power in the midst of that hardship. And I I thought about Paul as I was reading through this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he prayed three times that the messenger of Satan, that the thorn, that the Lord would, would do away with it. He says, uh, three times I pleaded with the Lord in verse eight about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So again, Paul asked and the Lord said, no, sorry. And he did that so that Paul wouldn't become prideful. So that when he boasted, he wouldn't boast in his strength, that he would boast in his weaknesses so that the power of God might be displayed through him. Obedience to Christ superseded any temporary comfort in the life of this early church. And their prayers reveal that. And your prayer really does reveal what you want. 
It's a way to look into the soul and what we truly desire. What do you pray for? What is the basis for all of your requests? And what I take away from this is very clear that that God is the supplier of boldness, isn't he? Sometimes I think we think boldness is like some inherent character trait in the lives of those who are more outward oriented, uh, the extroverts. But they ask for boldness. They understood that they did not have in and of themselves to face this persecution and continue to be faithful to the gospel. That they asked the Lord, Lord, you are the supplier of boldness. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. John Bloom defines boldness in this way. I think it's kind of an elaborated uh, definition that's helpful. He says, boldness in the biblical sense is not a personality trait. A typically soft-spoken, introverted, calm person can be bold at a time when a typically driven, outspoken, brash person shrinks back. Boldness is acting by the power of the Spirit on an urgent conviction in the face of some threat. So Paul knew it wasn't in him either. He later asked the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter six, he says, pray that I, that I would have boldness, that I might speak the gospel as I ought, as I ought. And this early church prayed for boldness, prayed for boldness. And so what is the foundation? If, so if Paul says, I should share the gospel as I ought boldly, why is that? Like why, why, pray, why should we be bold in our proclamation of the gospel? And it's because of even everything we've walked through in their request. It's because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. We ought to be bold in proclaiming the gospel because Jesus has risen from the dead. He secured our, our future that we have a rock solid hope that is being guarded by God, that there's, there's an entire biblical worldview that grounds why we ought to be bold in proclaiming the gospel. If I die, I will be present with the Lord, as Paul says in the book of Philippians, that the goal of my life is to please God and my identity is not wrapped up in what other people think about me when I bring up the gospel, that it's rooted, my identity is rooted in what we sang earlier, how appropriate. At the cross, my identity is rooted in Christ. And so there there are fundamental truths that ground you ought to be bold in sharing the gospel, the truth of God's word, the promises of God. The early church was bold. And they said, Lord, just grant us. You see their heart in this. Lord, we want to be obedient. Don't free us. Don't give us a life of comfort and ease. Don't just let us coast Give us boldness so that we might be obedient to you, even in the midst of persecution. And lastly, we see in verse 31 that that they trusted the Lord to answer their prayers. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The answered prayer, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the Lord answered that prayer. God blessed them with a more, with a, with a fuller measure of God's spirit and enabling them to be bold. Uh, as a result of this praying, he filled them and empowered them to do what he had commanded them to do. And we can always rest assured that in our praying, that if we're praying according to God's will, right, that he answers, he for sure answers those prayers. It is the Lord's will that you share the gospel. 
It is, the, it is the Lord's will that you continue to be faithful and obedient in the commission that he's given you. And so when we pray according to those things, we can rest assured that the Lord will answer them. God answers prayers according to his will. The early church, very clearly, uh, as we wrap up, they were a humble group of people. They were very dependent. They were in a place where they knew that, they, that the Lord had to carry out the work through them. They're, they're constantly praying. If you just read the book of Acts, they're always together in prayer. They saw themselves as needy. Uh, they, they were dependent. And you and I should emulate that as we think about the, looking at the example of the early church is that they were uneducated people. They had very little resources when it comes to like monetary resources. They didn't have buildings or programs. They had people who were dedicated to carrying out the commission that that Christ had. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And there is a direct connection between their impact into the nations and how much and what they prayed for. And you and I should do the same. We should be committed. I love that this is a corporate prayer. It's not the prayer of an individual. It's, it's, It's a community of people gathering together, giving their amen to this prayer. That God would give them boldness. I want to challenge you, church, whenever we have opportunity, right, we need to do a better job of cultivating a, right, a culture where we, where we pray. Sometimes it's awkward when we get together and pray in our prayer meetings. It's, you know, it's just not cut and dry, and we, we have a hard time, honestly, figuring out how, how do we do this efficiently. But I pray that your heart's desire right, is to come together with God's people, to, be, to collectively be dependent upon him in prayer. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.